I am Dennis Tubergen. You are listening to Retirement Lifestyle Advocates Radio. Welcome. We are here every week at this time and glad you decided to listen in. Hey, joining me on today's program is newsletter publisher David Skarika. Uh, we caught up with David this past week as he was traveling. Uh, David publishes the Addicted to Profits newsletter, and if you're a longtime listener to the program or the podcast, you probably recall a conversation I had with David at the beginning of the year. Uh, we've got David back today to uh, get his updated forecast. Uh, very bright guy, and I know you're going to enjoy my conversation with him. Today I want to talk to you, and specifically I want to direct what I'm going to talk about in this segment to those that have investments in IRAs and 401ks and traditional type investments. And when I talk about traditional investments, I'm talking about stocks and bonds and stock funds and bond funds. And I want to talk to you about identifying a potential bubble. What does an investment bubble look like? And are we in a bubble presently when it comes to stocks or bonds? And I think the conclusion that I come to and the evidence I present today uh, will not only be maybe a bit surprising to you, but also hopefully compelling. Now, if you want to take a look at recognizing a bubble, if you want to figure out the best way to identify if a bubble exists today, one of the best things you can do is go back, study history, look at when bubbles have existed in the past, and see what conditions look like just before that bubble burst. Now, that may not be an exact science. It's really impossible to predict when a bubble has peaked and, and, and getting out at the exact top is something that, uh, in my view, I don't think anyone can do. But it certainly can give you an idea as to where we're headed. Now, some of you listening to today's program may be old enough to remember the tech stock bubble of nearly 20 years ago. During that time, investors thought it made sense to invest in companies that had technological promise but had never made a profit. So as the technology craze intensified, the idea of investing in the stock of companies that had never made a profit ended up seeming normal to investors. Now, just a few years prior to that, most in the investing herd would have never considered investing in a company that was losing money. After all, how much sense does it make to invest in a losing enterprise? But at the peak of the tech stock bubble, the perspective of investors changed by a full 180 degrees. Well, a few years prior, it would have seemed ridiculous to invest in a company that had never made a profit. Now it seemed crazy not to invest in these same companies. After all, these companies' valuations were continuing to go up. Now, maybe you remember a company called Pets.com. In fact, they uh, really rose to prominence as a result of a television commercial that I believe was run during the Super Bowl. And they had this goofy white talking sock dog uh, that was the star of the commercial. And the talking sock dog, sock dog puppet tried to convince pet owners to buy their pet supplies online. Now, this company was founded in 1998, 
It went public just two years later in calendar year 2000, and it closed the same year, taking in over $300 million in investment capital as the company went public. Now, during its first fiscal year as a public company, the company spent nearly $12 million on advertising to generate sales of $619,000. Now, forgive me for being critical, but if you give me a $12 million advertising budget and my goal is to generate sales of $619,000, I think I can get the job done. Now, as crazy as that seems now, to spend $19 in advertising to generate $1 in sales, here's the question. Would you invest in that company? Well, the investing public collectively did. When the company went public, investors bid shares of Pet.com all the way up to $14 a share, even though the company had never turned a profit. Now, I don't know this to be the case, but it wouldn't surprise me that Pets.com set a record. They went out of business less than a year after taking the company public. And at liquidation, the company stock was selling for $0.19 a share, down from the $14 as the bubble burst. Now, let me compare that story with some statistics that I pulled from a CNBC article recently. 83% of U.S. companies that went public had lost money in the year leading up to their IPO, and that's from data over the last year, and that data was compiled by University of Florida finance professor Jay Ritter. So 83%, more than four out of five companies that have gone public in the last year have had negative earnings. That is the highest proportion since 1980, according to Professor Ritter's data even more than we saw prior to the tech stock bubble. One recent example, SurveyMonkey jumped 40% as far as share price goes. The share price jumped 40% after its public offering late last year. So are we in a bubble? On past programs, we've talked about the fact that companies are using cheap money and low interest rates to engineer share buybacks to drive up the share prices of stock. Now, I happen to believe that we are nearing the end of this bull market in stocks, which from a time frame perspective is the longest bull market in U.S. history. However, there is, in my view, an even bigger bubble building. And I write about it uh, on my blog this past week. And uh, David Stockman, former uh, budget director in the Reagan White House, also weighed in on this. And this is even a bigger bubble, as I said, I believe, than the potential stock bubble. And we're talking about bonds. If you've been listening to the program, you know that now over $17 trillion of government debt worldwide is yielding negative interest rates. Now, let me just explain to you what that means. You give a government money, and at some future point, they give you back less than you gave them. That's almost crazier than investing in a company that has never made a profit, and yet it's happening all around the world to the tune of $17 trillion. 
That's irrational. It's ludicrous. And in the fourth segment of today's program, I'll talk about the behavior driving that. But if you have a 401k or IRA, the common investments that you have are stocks, bonds, and cash. If bonds correct, if stocks correct, you could lose money. So it's time to think about protecting yourself and getting all the facts. And to help you do that, I've got a couple resources I'll mention very quickly. You can go to retirementlifestyleadvocates.com and subscribe to our weekly newsletter. You can also attend one of our events where we talk about maximizing Social Security, reducing taxes on IRAs, and protecting yourself from investment drawdown. Our next meeting uh, details can be found at socialsecuritydinner.com. Just visit the website socialsecuritydinner.com. I'll be back with David Skarika after these words. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I am your host, Dennis Tubergen. I am pleased to have back on the program today, Mr. David Skarika. If you're a regular listener to the program, you probably recognize David as the publisher of the Addicted to Profits newsletter. His website is addictedtoprofits.net. I would encourage you to check it out. Uh, David, uh, I am chatting with today from his home in the Bahamas, uh, where he did survive the recent hurricane. And uh, David, uh, welcome to the program. Actually, just so you know, I'm visiting my father in Canada right now, but yeah, I did survive the hurricane. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) well, I appreciate you straightening me out on that. Well, there's so much to talk about since you were on last time, David. Uh, I'd like to start by talking about the fact that uh, we have, I think, $17 trillion uh, of sovereign debt yielding negative rates. Um, this, from just an outside viewpoint looking in, just appears to be craziness. Uh, how did we get here? Um, well, I think this is like this is kind of like a monetary experiment gone wild or gone awry, you could even say. Um, cause I don't think it works. So first of all, the problem with negative rates, just from a, a logistical or simple standpoint, would be this. Number one, if you have a savings account, like let's forget all the, the, the what, what it does to the financial system. Let's just look at it on a micro level. If you have a savings account, well, a savings account usually is based off short-term interest rates um, and the whatnot, right? Well, all of a sudden, you could be paying the bank for the right of having that savings account. You know, instead of getting, no one gets interest anymore these days in the West anyhow, but, you know, instead of getting a quarter of a percent or half a percent, you could be paying the bank that. And then on the reverse side, if you have a mortgage with the bank and it's a variable rate mortgage based, again, on short-term rates, the bank could be paying you interest to have that mortgage. And I think in some of the places that have the more extreme negative interest rates, like Switzerland and Denmark, this has actually occurred where people like, – like that would mean like, for example, in the Bahamas where I have my place, we still have kind of more normalized rates. Our, our, our rate there is prime plus three. So I, I basically pay about, you know, six to seven percent right now um, on my 10 year mortgage. Well, you know, if, if instead of paying that seven percent interest on top of my principal, I, I, I if I was in Denmark, I might be getting negative half a percent. So it actually reduce my mortgage payment <laughs> from, uh, to be less than just my principal payment. So it's kind of this perverse 
uh, doing this perverse uh, form of, of capitalism right now, and it's because we don't really have any growth. And one of the things that people don't mention that much, because when they talk about why rates are low, why this, is you know people think maybe it's like Japan. Um, but I think what they just don't talk about is, I, I think at the, at the epicenter of all this problem with negative interest rates is these governments are all broke, right? Like, you know, you've got the U.S. is getting towards 100% debt to GDP. You know, Italy is 130. Obviously, Greece, you know, basically went under a few years ago and had to, you know, basically have a bailout. And then, and then you know, even like every Western country, you know, France, Belgium, Canada, U.K., everyone's approaching 100% of GDP, so they came and afford higher rates, right? Like one reason that the Japanese central bank has to try to keep rates around zero is because Japan's debt to GDP is 250%. So if they had like 2% on their 10-year bond, Japan would basically broke because everything would be going to interest payments. So at the epicenter of this is that you have these governments that have kind of gone nuts with spending uh, in the last 20, 30 years, especially in the last 10, as they failed to recover um, you know, fully from the financial crisis. And these debts make uh, it having normalized rates almost unattainable now because they can't afford the interest payments on on, um, on the debt. And then what's happened too, this is kind of a perverse thing about it, is if you go look at like the U.S. where the deficit is now over a trillion dollars, you know, there's an old saying, the Republicans borrow and spend and the Democrats tax and spend. But even all the Democratic candidates down there are talking with all these wild, you know, uh, uh, spending initiatives. And we're having the election here in Canada, and the same thing is going on here with most of the parties. And what's funny is because there is no really strain right now because these rates are so low, even though the debts are high, it's actually making politicians more emboldened to have these wild proposals, you know, like a universal bank of income or, or universal health care or whatever it may be, because they, don't, they just don't feel the stress of the debt because rates are so low. So it just kind of perverts everything and then of course it really kills the banks because one way reason the uh, way the banks make money you know is to borrow on the short term and then uh you know uh, and then lend on the long term or you know and get that spread well now with long-term rates coming down and the yield curve almost inverted they don't really they really can't make any money that way you know david i was reading an article um uh, written by David Stockman, former White House budget director, who said that he likens this bond market and negative interest rates to the greater, greater fool theory that uh, you know investors are taking a look at negative rates and assuming that rates are even going to go more negative, and that will obviously inflate the value of bonds. And it's like somebody's going to get stuck holding the bag because at some point there will not be a greater fool. Do you think that's a, a, an accurate uh, description of what's going on in the bond market now? Yeah, yeah, because if you go look at some of the people who are long-term bulls on bonds and still continue to be, that's their whole, like, um, uh, argument. Like, if people, for example, we don't have negative rates on the long-term yet in the United States, but, you know, their, their argument would be, well, you know, if, if, if negative rates, rates are negative in places like Germany and Japan, why not hold your 10- or 30-year bond, you know, which yield about 1.5 to 2%, because if they go to zero, you know, that's going to be a good increase on, on the price of the coupon of the bond, right? So that's kind of the same thing. But the question question is, who are they looking to sell to? My opinion is everyone's just sitting around waiting for another round of QE to come from the Fed, the European Central Bank, uh, you know, whatever, the, the, the UK Central Bank. And then they're looking to, okay, now we got these negative rates and we'll just dump those bonds to the central banks because when they do QE, they'll be buying those bonds. So it's, the question is, 
do, do those bonds sell off before that or during that? Or is it the central banks themselves are the ones who end up holding the bag, buying all these bonds at the top of the market, and then they back up? Because here's one argument I want to talk about with the rates going forward. You know, I'm talking about three to five years. At some point when we get another global recession, you know, which usually happens every 10 years, and we're 11 years into this business cycle, um, so, so we're already on borrowed time, um, these deficits will blow up even more. And everyone's debt is way higher than it was um, uh, prior to the financial crisis. So when that happens, everyone just assumes, I think what people are assuming, this is going to be like Japan. We're just going to have this 20, 30-year period of maybe low growth and low rates. But Japan is very unique in that. They were able to fund their deficits with their current account surplus, their trade surplus, et cetera. And they had these big deficits and stagnant growth at a time when the rest of the global economy is was booming. And J- Japan is a big exporter, especially in uh, things like electronics and automobiles. So the question is, do you get the bond vigilantes coming in? I don't think the whole world can be like Japan. I think that you know, if you get this recession in these countries that are, again, like I just mentioned, that are all 100% debt to GDP or higher, I think at some point the, the investors will begin to push up rates, wanting a higher rate of return because the governments are essentially insolvent. I think we're a ways away from that. I think in any short-term downturn, meaning the next you know, 12 to 18 months, we would probably see another push up higher in bond prices, lower in rates. But if you go look what happened during, to the pig countries from 2010, 2011, 2012, what happened is their rates all went down with U.S. rates and, and um German rates and et cetera from in 08 and 09. And then they all went up after you saw their economies really weaken and their debts blow up. So I think that we would see something like that where every, all everyone's rates could go down together, synchronized as the economies weaken. But then in the aftermath of that, when you kind of like, you know, as they say, when the water goes out, you see who's naked and you see the countries that are in really bad shape, we could begin to see sovereign debt go um, higher in yield. Well, if you're just joining us, we're chatting today with Mr. David Skarika. David is the publisher of the Addicted to Profits newsletter. Uh, you can learn more on his website at addictedtoprofits.net. Um, you know, David, where does this end? I mean, how negative can rates go in your view before people and investors kind of wake up and go, wait a minute, this is just not normal? I don't know if there's a specific, sorry, a specific number. Because who knows, when something gets like the negative quarter or negative half percent on a two-year or 10-year bond, who really knows? What's to stop it to go from negative one or negative two percent? You're kind of like in a mania, you know, like Bitcoin was a couple of years ago at 20,000 or dot-com stocks were in the late 90s or gold was in 1980 when it turned into a bubble then in the late 70s. And then when that happens is, you know, like gold's last surge was 250 to 800 from 79 to 80, and that happened in less than a year. You know, Bitcoin went from five or 6,000 to 20,000 in a few months, right? And, you know, the NASDAQ on that last move more than doubled in price in just like a six-month period. So when you're in that kind of blow-off manic phase, you really don't know how high things could go. But I would say, again, it's more... If you go look at what I talked about with the timing, once the downturn comes and you see the announcements of, say, more big QE similar to so, oh, 2009 or, or, or 2012-13, I think that's when, you know, the, what, what will happen is people are essentially, you know, be selling to the central bank. So I wouldn't be surprised to see the announcement of big uh, quantitative easing programs like that 
actually coincide with the top of the bond market and lows and rates because it'll essentially be like sell the news. Okay, this is what we've been speculating on these bonds for, um, thinking that the central banks are just going to buy them for us uh, from us at an um, inflated level. So that's really what I would look at. I, I would think that not so much price and time, you don't know, but when that announcement is made of a big quantitative easing programs, that's probably when the bond market sells the news. So, David, in the time we have left, and we've got about three and a half minutes left in this segment, um, I'm a, you know, you, you take a look at what gold's done this year, and since the last time you were on the program, I think gold is up about $300 an ounce or so. Um, and at the time, you were bullish on gold, so that was a great call. Uh, you know, when you take a look at the fact that, you know, you can go put money in the bank here and get no yield, or you can put money in gold and get no yield, uh, is that part of what's driving the, 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 you know, the price of gold, that, hey, if I'm getting no yield anyway, why don't I have the tangible asset? Yeah, and I think what you have in gold is not just retail investors doing that, but institutional money. Like, for example, like we always just look at things from the U.S. perspective, but people have to understand the combined European Union economy is bigger than the U.S. economy, to take all those countries combined. So it's the largest economy in the world if you were to look at the euro as, as say, one currency and one economy. And if you know, you've got and you've got trillions of dollars in money, and that money that's kind of in safe assets, which is what uh, you know the sovereign, you know, AAA rated uh, sovereign debt would be considered. Um, well, all of a sudden, if you're getting negative yields on that, even if just a few uh, percentage points of that money that would go into say sovereign debt, uh, if the managers say, "Hey, I'd rather go into gold because the capital price appreciation is much bigger than bonds here, and I'm paying." You know, negative interest rates, I'm paying for the right to own these bonds. So I think it's not just retail investors doing that. It's, it's you're seeing actually real institutional money flow into gold because of that issues that this institutional money would have and kind of, um, you know, safety assets, those being government bonds, not giving them any yield anymore. So, yeah, it's it's definitely positive. And then kind of on the flip side, though, you get this. And I'm not saying you don't want to be too rosy in your predictions, but if the, if the sovereign debt goes down in price you know, or the yields go up, we start losing money on those bonds, and losing money on those bonds might push people into gold too. So I think you're kind of in this sweet spot where these negative rates really help gold, but also any kind of sell-off in the bond market could help because people start losing money. And like I said earlier, because the debt levels are so high, it's not like, oh, the Italian bonds yielding 5%. Oh, the U.S. bonds yielding 5% now. The big sell-off came. You'd be looking at these countries and say, hey, you know what? The American economy or the Italian economy and governments are not solvent with the long bond at 5%. So I think you've kind of got the sweet spot now where even those higher yields could really help um, gold prices because these companies are so close or, country, or countries are so close to insolvency because their debt levels are so high. Well, David, we're coming up on the end of our first segment here, and at the beginning of the segment, I mentioned to the listeners that uh, you have a special offer to help out with the uh, Baja Manian relief effort. Do you want to share that with the listeners? Yeah, yeah. There's a local charity in the Bahamas called Head Knowles. So if you just were to do it, if you write me personally at um, addicted to profits at hotmail.com, or you um, uh, just do a quick Google search, Head Knowles GoFundMe, you'll see their page on GoFundMe. And essentially what I do is I sell uh, lifetime subscriptions for usually 2500 uh, a year. So but what I'm doing is for a 60% discount for a $1,000 donation 
to Head Knowles, I'll give someone a lifetime subscription. All you got to do is send me an email with maybe a receipt of, you know, the, obviously the payment uh, to it, and um, I'll give you a lifetime subscription in the newsletter. And Head Knowles is great because it's it's a local charity, so they they know they can operate within the islands, and they obviously know, you know, they, they, they deal with the government, and, they, and logistically they have more of an advantage than, say, the Red Cross and some of these other organizations, which are still doing a lot of work, but I really like the, the kind of Head Knowles thing. And also Head Knowles, being a smaller local charity, they don't have kind of all the bureaucracy and overhead that some of these other charities have. So that's the one I prefer to give to. All right. Well, I'd encourage the listeners to uh, go check that out. And uh, the good news is David will be back for the next segment, uh, and we will return with that next segment after these words. Stay with us. I am Dennis Tubergen. You are listening to Retirement Lifestyle Advocates Radio. My guest today is Mr. David Skarika. Uh David is the publisher of the excellent newsletter, Addicted to Profits, and you can go check it out and learn more about his work at addictedtoprofits.net. And uh, David, uh, let, let me jump in because we talked in the last segment about um, sovereign debt, government bonds. Um, we didn't talk much about corporate debt or, or corporate bonds, um, let's talk about how those bonds may behave or how correlated those bonds are to government bonds. Um, yeah, so corporate debt is interesting because usually it just moves with government bonds. Like, for example, on this big rally we've seen in the bond market, you know, with the yield on the 10-year treasury dropping in the U.S. from over 3% to 1.5%. The, um, if you look at the LQD, which is the um, the corporate bond uh, the uh, investment grade uh, rated ETF um, that has rallied quite a bit from about 115 to almost 130 as you know the yields in corporate bonds and I'm talking about investment grade corporate bonds here not junk bonds um, they they um, have moved with it but here's the interesting thing when the economy turns down you saw this in the early 2000s you saw this in 2008 you know corporations obviously are very very uh, you know cyclical and they're they're affected by an economic downturn meaning like you know any company almost in any industry is going to see less revenues the profit margins crush or even start losing money and they're obviously not the size of governments and don't have uh, the, the the full access to the bond market so usually you see this this um, they kind of separate. So what will happen is there'll be a, a a flight to quality or a flight to safety in government bonds, but actually corporate bonds and especially investment grade corporate bonds um, will, will kind of fall in price. And again, you saw that in the early 2000s. You saw that in 2008, even while government bonds rallied. So where I think there's this unique opportunity now is for the short term, they're trading with the government bond markets. But if this turns into a full blown recession. With that combined with this excessive bubble that has occurred in the corporate bond market, remember, since 2008, what's happened is these excessively low interest rates have lured corporations into uh, borrowing. I think investment-grade corporate debt has gone almost doubled from $3.6 trillion to uh, $6 trillion in just the last uh, 10 years. And most of this has been used for financial engineering, for stock buybacks, M&A, et cetera. So it hasn't really gone to productive purposes as well. And you're seeing something like GE is kind of like the first victim of taking on all this corporate debt for financial engineering. Um, so, so once that occurs, I think there's this great trade right now 
where when they separate, corporate bonds will tank. And, you know, uh, you could maybe go long government bonds at the short end corporates. But what I really like is because investment grade corporate bonds are traditionally very conservative and very stable. There is no implied volatility in um, uh, in the bond market for them. Uh, you, you know, uh, say on the LTD, you can trade puts and calls. So I like to do a long term put play on the LQD. And if these bonds go down 20, 30 percent in price, there's only about two or three percent implied volatility. So that means you'll get the price movement plus the the volatility will blow out. So really only a 20, 30 percent move in price could give you a 10, 20, even 30 X gain on these put options. And that's fantastic because usually to get that kind of gain on a put option, you need you know a stock to collapse, you know, 50, 60, 70 percent or same thing with the stock market to do the same. So you really have a great risk reward trade. And if you're someone who's very risk adverse, you could actually just do a straddle trade, meaning that you could go one put, one call. And if you get that blowout, um, uh, you're going to to make a lot of money anyhow, even if your calls expire worthless. So I really like this trade. You know, with corporate bonds and their all-time low in yields, you got to have a pretty risk reward, a good risk reward on, on doing a short trade. And, and you could just look at that too as a hedge trade, that if you're long risk assets, if you're still long stocks, um, even if you're long gold equities like me, gold equities are still equities. And when downturns get really serious in the stock market, they tend to sell off with the rest of the stock market. So that trade to me is a great hedge trade. And like I said, you don't have a lot of premium or implied volatility on that hedge. So when you say long-term put, can you define long-term, David, for the listeners? Like, for example, right now you could buy, you know, right now we're talking in the fall of 2019, you could buy the January 2021s, which would be, you know, 14, 15 months out, or you buy the January 2022s, which would be like, you know, um, uh, you know, um, well, um, even longer than that, yeah. that would be more like you know, 26 months out, almost yeah. two years out. And like I said, because the implied volatility is so low, you're not paying a huge amount of premium, but usually when you're buying, they're called leaps long-term uh, options like that, usually you're paying huge premiums in leaps, especially if you're trading, say, a stock like Netflix or something that's very um, volatile. But with, with this trade, again, you're not paying a huge amount of premium because because uh, uh, historically corporate bonds um, are, are – um, are, are pretty stable. But I do think when you hit that recession in the early 2000s, again, and and then 2008 showed that, you're going to see that disconnect of the corporate bond market, investment-grade corporate bond market, and um, government bond market. And the thing about that as well is, um, I think you combine that with the corporate bond market is one of the epicenters of this bubble this time. So it's not just like a regular recession as well, just like subprime was kind of the epicenter of 2008 and obviously mortgages as a whole. I think the corporate bond market is one of the epicenters of this coming uh, recession or downturn when it finally rolls over. So David, you've mentioned recession a couple of times. Uh, do you think that the U S is in recession now? And uh, if your answer is no, uh, do you see us officially going into recession prior to the election? If we are not in recession, we are very close. We're probably slowing. So a lot, a lot of the growth this year is inventory building because people were worried about the, the tariffs and the trade war. So that inventory building kind of front ended some of the economic growth. And, um, 
even Trump even said that in one of his tweets. He was all excited. He was like saying that almost like the trade war was adding to drug growth. And he, what he meant by that was um, the inventory building. So now we, we're not seeing that anymore. And now we're seeing actually uh, businesses and consumers rein in spending because now they're worried about higher prices. So I don't, I don't know if we're in one, but we're very, very close. You know, the PMIs, a lot of those surveys have turned negative, which is usually means you're you're entering a period of serious slowing or recession. Um, what I could see is maybe we get a mild recession late this year, early next year. And then they'll try to juice the economy into the election. And then maybe you see a double dip where, you know, after the election or 2021, you see a more severe long term, no matter what happens in the election. Either Trump has to pull back his stimulus from trying to be reelected or, you know, you've got maybe some far left wing candidate gets in and all of those kind of, um, you know, all those kind of policies hit the economy as well. So I, that's kind of what I see that we might hit a mild recession now. But something more serious, maybe later next year or 2021. So, David, what are you telling your listeners now about stocks? We are, I believe, uh, uh, in the from a time frame standpoint or time perspective, we're in the longest bull market in U.S. history. Um, is this rally stale? Do you see stocks turning over? What are you talking about in your newsletter? Like, uh, I've been someone who's been extremely bearish on and off the last few years, and. You know, the big downturn hasn't really played out. I'm going to admit that. So I'm very, I'm lukewarm on stocks. I'm not very positive. Uh, you know, there's not much that's undervalued right now. I'm extremely overweight, precious metals. Like I, I, I had a good weighting anyhow, but when in about June, it looked like the breakout was starting. Because you understand, uh, we were in a range of about 12, uh, sorry, about 1050 to about um, 1350 for the last six years. And when gold broke above that, uh, or looked like it was going to break above that, I really started aggressively get into that. And by the way, that's been fantastic for me. Like my portfolio has performed great this year because of that. So I'm I'm like lukewarm. The only kind of stocks I'm buying is either kind of some beaten up technologies like 3D printing that I like, and um, I do participate. You know, I'm in Canada where they legalize marijuana, and some of these pre-IPOs and marijuana deals that's cooled off a lot as well. So I, I'm still pretty lukewarm, and I don't think you have a big incentive to get into equities here because, again, with the the most the the, um, the indicator showing this the most is actually um, you can't look at PDEs right now. When people say, "Oh, the PDE is only 16," is it the E is so manipulated by stock buybacks and, and that sort of thing? What you really have to look at is the price to sales. And um, the market cap to GDP and the market cap to GDP, which basically takes stocks and compares it to uh, the entire economy. It's an indicator that Warren Buffett is really fa a fan of. It's basically at the 2000 highs, which is an all time high. And for only the third time in history, it's above 100 percent. So the other two times were 2000 and 2007, where the stock market is larger than the economy. So there isn't really much upside. Now, the problem is. You know, those kind of indicators are not longer term and stocks could still go up another 10, 15, 20 percent, especially if they strike some kind of short term trade deal combined with maybe some fiscal or, or uh, monetary stimulus trying to prop everything up into the election. But to me, having, you know, whatever, 10, 15, 20 percent upside and 50 percent downside probably isn't worth it right here. So. Again, other than being in you know some precious metal companies, um, a select uh, maybe cheap companies that I like, I'm I'm not uh, bullish on the stock market at all. And also, I usually try to keep in all my portfolios 
a 10 to 20% hedge, regardless uh, whether it's either, you know, bear ETFs or, um, or, or, or a small amount of put options uh, as well. Well, the clock tells me, David, we have about one minute left in this segment, which is just enough time for you to tell any of our listeners that may have just joined us about what you're doing to help out with a relief effort in the Bahamas. Would you like to share that one more time here as we close? Yeah, no problem. So um, just to quickly go over it, I live in Eleuthera, which is about 100 miles south of uh, where the hurricane epicenter was. And uh, the eye, which was one of the strongest category five storms ever, went over um, an island called Abaco and another island called Grand Bahama with the eye going directly over Marsh Harbor, which is actually probably the third largest town in the Bahamas after the two cities of Nassau and Freeport. So um, it basically wiped everything out there because Abaco is very low lying. So anyhow, there's a local charity called Head Knowles and they're kind of on the ground. They know how to deal. You know, sometimes things on the islands can take longer than expected and be a little backward. So they really know how to deal uh, locally with the government and, and get along uh, logistically. So if you give to them, and, and like I said earlier, they have lower overhead than some of the larger charities. So if you go to their GoFundMe page, uh, Head Knowles for Dorian Relief, or if you write me at Addicted to Profits. Oh, sorry, at hotmail.com. I can, I can refer you to the link. And if you do a $1,000 donation, I'll give someone a lifetime subscription to my newsletter. So I'm obviously making no money out of it. It doesn't benefit me personally at all. It's just essentially going all to uh, charity. And um, I'll, I'll give someone that lifetime subscription, and subscription in exchange. Well, I would encourage the listeners to do that. And, David, always a pleasure to have you on the program. Always appreciate your perspective. And I'd love to have you back after the first of the year and check back in with you. Yeah, sure. Yeah, thank you very much. We will be back after these words. Stay with us. You are listening to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Thanks to Mr. David Skarika for joining us on today's program. You know, in the first segment, I talked about the fact that stocks may be once again in a bubble, and I compared the fact that more than four out of five companies going public today have negative earnings over the past year, which is very reminiscent of what happened during the tech stock bubble run-up of nearly two decades ago. But there may be an even bigger bubble as I close the first segment discussing. And that is that there is now $17 trillion of debt or bonds worldwide yielding negative interest rates. Now, as interest rates decline, bonds appreciate. So if interest rates go up, bonds go down in value. So yields and bond values have inverse have an inverse relationship. So as interest rates fall even to negative rates, it means the value of these bonds is going up significantly. Now, Bill Blaine, who is an economic commentator, commented this past week. I'll give you just a bit from his blog. He said, I have spent most of my career in fixed income markets. Now when you hear the term fixed income, it just means bond. 
So I've spent most of my career in fixed income or bond markets. What I see today scares the blank out of me. I don't think the station on which this program airs would like me to read what Mr. Blaine wrote. Needless to say, he is frightened. We are looking at 2% yields on the 30-year U.S. Treasury bond. That's the highest bond yield in the whole developed world sovereign bond market. In other words, if you loan the U.S. government money for 30 years, you will collect a 2% yield per year, and that's the best you can do worldwide. Blaine continues, he said, and the market thinks it's a bargain because U.S. rates are inevitably going to zero and beyond, meaning that investors are scooping up 30-year U.S. treasuries at 2%, not because they want the 2%, but because they think yields are going to go to zero or below like the rest of the world, and they're looking to make money on the appreciation. Blaine states the obvious. He says, this is not good. It really is not good. It is not normal. It means something is very, very wrong. Yet, investors can't get enough of it. Delicious, yummy, sub-0% yielding bonds. Now, As I mentioned in the first segment, a bubble never seems like a bubble until it bursts. And Blaine has an interesting take. He said the the markets have an objective of inflicting the maximum amount of pain on the maximum number of market participants. Now, David Stockman, who is a former Reagan administration Office of Budget Management Director, had an interesting take on this whole thing. He said that this bond market run-up, these negative rates, is really a sign of a different problem. He commented that, in his view, we are actually in the mother of all bond bubbles. I would certainly agree. Stockman said the mainstream is looking at the yield curve inversion, meaning that short-term interest rates are yielding a higher rate than long-term rates, through the lens of conventional wisdom. In fact, conventional wisdom says when the yield curve inverts, it predicts a recession, which historically has been true. Stockman says, though, there's nothing conventional about the current situation. He says this, history doesn't count any longer because we have financial conditions resulting from massive intrusion by the central banks that no longer really discount economic reality, but simply involve the massive speculation and distortions that are caused by the central bank's only $25 trillion of securities they bought over the last 10 or 15 years and thereby falsifying the price of almost everything. He said there really is something new under the sun. It's the bond market wreckage that has resulted from the massive central bank money printing that we've seen ever since the crisis in 2008 But that's really been going on for several decades now. Now, to understand Stockman's point, you just have to look at the fundamental dynamics of the bond market. And again, I covered that earlier in this segment. But bond yields have an inverse relationship with their price. When you have a negative yield, it simply means that you've driven the price of the bond market way up. It indicates significant demand for that bond. But Stockman nails it. He said, what we're seeing is rampant rampant speculation in the bond market. Investors are banking on continued bond buying by central banks. 
So they think if they buy a bond with negative yields down the road, they can sell it to a central bank who has printed money to buy the bond at a profit. So Stockman says investors believe this phenomenon of money printing to buy bonds will continue to push prices up and investors are speculating on the rising prices. It's nothing but a massive bond market bubble and Stockman uses a 100-year Austrian bond as an example. When it was issued, the yield was 2%. Eventually, the bond was trading at twice its value and the yield was under 1%. So Stockman says this is nothing but rampant, crazy speculation. So this is what's going on in the bond market. The biggest speculative blow-off in history as traders are piling into these long-term bonds, believing that central banks are going back to quantitative easing heavily again. He said this is the mother of all bond bubbles, and when it reverses, because a lot of these bonds are being bought by speculators, it will have a devastating effect on the $100 trillion bond market in the world today. Now, investors don't care about yield. They care about appreciation. This is a lot like investors in the tech stock bubble that didn't really care about negative earnings. They were interested in appreciation. The same can be true of many of the IPOs that we're seeing today. My question for you is simply this. Are you protected? If stocks crash and bonds crash... We have a situation that goes against the conventional thinking in investing. Typically, you buy bonds to hedge a decline in stocks and vice versa. It appears that that may not be true anymore. So if you've not yet taken advantage of some of the resources that we have available to you, I would encourage you to do that. You can visit retirementlifestyleadvocates.com and subscribe to our weekly Portfolio Watch newsletter. It is free. Just give us your email and we will send you that uh, newsletter on Monday nights at five o'clock along with a link to this podcast. You can also attend one of our events where we talk about managing drawdown and protecting yourself as well as reducing taxes on IRAs and maximizing social security. Information about our next event is available at socialsecuritydinner.com. That is socialsecuritydinner.com. That's all the time I have for this week, but I'll be back again next week. Hope you'll be here too.